0: Torn's going to throw an image up there of this icon from the Russian Orthodox Church. This guy is St. Nicholas, right? Um, St. Nicholas, he's from Myra in Turkey, in present-day Turkey, and he died in 343 AD, so that's the time period where he, he was alive. We know like very little about this man's actual life, except that he was a follower of Jesus and he was a bishop in the church. And one story that's associated with Nicholas from some fairly early writings is that he heard the plight of a very poor family in his community. This father had three daughters and the daughters, the father was so poor, he didn't have a dowry for them. And so he was destitute and he had made up his mind to sell them into slavery, uh, which in the Roman empire, it's bad. It doesn't it's not as bad as it sounds, but it's still really bad, and he hated that he had to do that, and so he, he's going to have to sell them to indentured slavery so that they can make a living somehow. St. Nicholas hears about this apparently, and at night what he does is he takes some gold and he puts it in a bag, and on three consecutive nights he sneaks a bag of gold in through the father's open window. Uh, he, first night for one daughter, the second night for another daughter. The third night the father apparently stays up. He's like, how's this gold getting in my house? I'm waiting up. Yeah, for santa no for saint nicholas and and he wakes up and, and realizes it's saint nicholas saint nicholas says like hey i was just trying to do a nice thing like don't tell anybody but of course i'm telling you now because the father probably told somebody right so anyway um that's about all the information we have about saint nicholas from early sources but then something happens Over the centuries, various legends about Saint Nicholas sprang up from sources ranging from uh, Eastern Europe to Germany to Poland, Italy, Holland, England, and the United States. By the 1200s, stories of Saint Nicholas involved him having superpowers, like flight, I'm serious, like the original Superman. Um, He had teleportation powers in some of these writings, and he even had the ability to sometimes rescue slaves By teleporting them out of danger and into new places. It's amazing. Uh, Deeper into the Middle Ages, the the gift giving that was normally associated with with Christmas was uh, Christian people, usually adults, would give gifts to the poor or give gifts to each other. Now, all of a sudden, gift giving gets turned into a children's thing where children get gifts and the giver is Saint Nicholas. Uh, now, he didn't only bring gifts. Sometimes he would bring a whip or a stick, depending on the ethical behavior of said children throughout the year. So this is high stakes Christmas in the Middle Ages. Uh, Jerry Bowler, in his, if, you, if you love all this stuff, there's actually this guy, Jerry Bowler, wrote a book called Santa Claus, A Biography. And it's, it's actually really enjoyable. Uh, have it if you want to borrow it, or you can just buy it. It's paperback, whatever. Uh, but anyway, he writes this about um, 16th century Germany. The saint came through the window, even when it was barred shut or down the chimney. Sometimes he came alone and sometimes with companions. That's kind of creepy. He left gifts in stockings and gifts in shoes by the fire, by the window, by the bed. He walked or he flew or he rode a donkey, like, you know, take your pick. I'd rather fly, but sometimes he preferred the donk. Okay, uh, then the, the Celts introduced the Yule Log tradition into St. Nicholas lore, which is still prominent in Catalonia. Ask the Ak- uh, Akersons, they can tell you all about that. Uh, meanwhile, similar Middle Ages, and after the Reformation, Protestants in the Scotland and England, these theologians and and, and pastors, they basically all but canceled the lore of St. Nicholas. Um, Christmas was de-emphasized because of people's obsession with the cult of St. Nicholas and all of this gift-giving and taking the focus off of Christmas. Santa Claus, in fact, may have died out of focus in the West altogether were it not for two main influences. The first was a work of poetic verse penned in 1822, supposedly by a man who lived in New York named Clement Clark Moore. You know this poem because it's the most popular poem in the world, and it begins with, "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse, you know the rest, right? Tradition has it that Moore wrote this for his children while he was out on an errand. He had a Dutch uh, servant who was riding, driving the sleigh, and he went out for a fowl for a bird to bring back for holiday dinner. And while he's in this picturesque snow and uh, talking to his Dutch uh, servant who's telling him about the lore of the uh, the people in, in Holland, in St. Nicholas, he comes up with this idea to write a poem for his kids. Now, this poem is lost in obscurity for a number of years until a writer uh, for the New York Sentinel finds it, happens upon it, and he publishes it in the Sentinel and the rest is history. Uh, Torrin put this image up. This is the first place we get an image of Santa like this. This is the only Santa many of us know, right? The, jolly, the, the idea of this jolly fat guy in a red suit with reindeer and a sleigh that flies, that's this poem. The second phenomenon that keeps the legend of Saint Nicholas alive is Coca-Cola. Oh, Coca-Cola, whose Christmas ads have taken the classic tropes of the poem, The Night Before Christmas, and they put them in all of our minds through print and television and product marketing. Let's look at some of these. Here's the original, um, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, got his Coke there, the kids are happy, it's for Santa. Next one, this one's weird, like, now he's using it as a stimulant, right? Because his tired face is coming off, and so now he's gonna stay uh, awake all night. And this next one is really creepy. Give and take, I say. So he just comes into your house and rates <laughs> raids the fridge for a little turkey leg there and takes the Cokes out of your fridge while he, while he gives the gifts, okay? So this is, this, is, um, this is how Santa has gone from, well, let's show the next picture, and Gone from this guy who died in 343 AD as a bishop to that guy. This Advent season, we've been exploring whether or not the birth narratives of Jesus are believable as we have them in Scripture. And I give full credit to Rebecca McLaughlin and her book, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four questions everyone should ask about the world's most famous story. My sermon series is based on her book, and each of these themes for each of the sermons is literally her order of uh, chapter outlines in the book. So I give her all the credit for all of this just to get that out of the way. Now, last week, I suggested that it is reasonable to believe that Jesus was truly born and truly lived and truly had a following of people who even after he died, they decided they wanted to worship him as a divine being. That's just fact because we looked last week at outside of scripture, at the writings of Pliny the Younger and Tacitus and Josephus, and there's other sources that that talk about Jesus as a real historical figure without any of the Christian texts coming into it. These people not only were not Christians, but they didn't like Christians, so they had no reason to make up a story about Jesus. This week, we're going to ask the question as to whether or not the New Testament is a trustworthy source to tell us about Jesus. After all, it's the New Testament that says so much more about Jesus than last week's sources would. Uh, the New Testament makes claims about Jesus' family, his place of birth, about his identity as more than a mere man, but as the son of man, the hope of, of the world sent from God. How do we know that the information in the New Testament isn't just merely legend, like a story like St. Nicholas that developed over centuries where you start with a historical figure and you end up with a dude with superpowers flying around and drinking your Coke and stealing your turkey legs at night? How do we know that Jesus wasn't just the regular human guy that Tacitus and Pliny write about and over the centuries got turned into this thing that we all gather around and worship? How do we know? Are the gospels just mythological tales? Are they uh, sensationalized versions of the historical accounts of Jesus? In other words, is the New Testament that we have in our Bible a trustworthy source of information about about Jesus? Now, notice what I'm not going to do tonight, as I'm not going to dive into miracles and virgin birth and resurrection that seems to me like a whole nother logical step. We'll get to that if we can establish that the New Testament is trustworthy in the first place. So we're, we're not gonna deal with that stuff tonight. But for the rest of this preaching moment, what I wanna do is make the case that the New Testament is a reliable source of information about Jesus. And Torn's gonna throw up a slide here, so uh, we're looking at an ancient Greek manuscript and that's, that's the big question I wanna wrestle with for the rest of the evening. And to do that, I think we need to really address two sub-questions. Sub uh, the first one is: Has the text um, uh, has the text been reliably passed down to us? Right. So most of the Bibles on your on your table right now, or on your phone, they're English translations. If you're an English speaker, or maybe uh, maybe you've got a Spanish Bible, or some other some other modern language Bible that's not Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, right? And where are we where do we get those translations from? What are they translating it from? Um, We don't have the original manuscripts. So has the transmission uh, from the original Bible to what we have now, has that been reliable? And how would we even know? Okay, that's one question I feel like we just really need to wrestle with. Um, And then the second one is, even if the text had been reliably passed down, even if it was word for word exactly right, were the original words accurate? Were, Were they actually accurate about portraying Jesus? So that's, we've got a work cut out for us, and I'm aware of the time. This is a sermon, not a class, and so we're gonna get right to it. Okay, so let's start with the first question. Has the text been reliably passed down to us? well, the New Testament, as you know, is made up of 27 separate writings by multiple authors. And these, the dates of these writings are estimated to originate between 40 AD, roughly, at the earliest, uh, all the way down to 80 and 90 AD, uh, maybe 95 at the latest. So we've got this spectrum of some of those books are early and some of them are quite late. If Jesus dies around 33, to 30, You know, so that's, that's what we're dealing with. Um, We don't have any, to our knowledge yet, archaeology has not given us anything we would say is, this is the original John gospel that John wrote, or, you know, like we don't have the original manuscripts. Uh, And many of the manuscripts that we do have are are carbon dated and and, and dated at maybe hundreds of years, uh, maybe one, two, three, four hundred years, and most of them are a thousand years or more Older than than Jesus's life, so how can we have any confidence that these writings are preserved accurately? Uh, you've probably wrestled with these questions, or maybe you're like, I've been trying not to. Thanks, Chris. Now I am. Uh, here we. As it turns out, though, uh, we have very good reason to trust. That the manuscripts we have are extremely well preserved. And one of the reasons we can have this confidence is because of the nearly miraculous. And I I say nearly just because I don't like to be hyper-parabolic, but I personally think it's miraculous. How many manuscripts we have of the New Testament. It's unbelievable. And to show you kind of the difference, I want to show you a comparison between how many New Testament manuscripts fragments we have and other texts that you would know about. So Tacitus' Annals, I mean, this is one of the most famous historical ancient documents, the one we talked about last week that mentions Jesus. It was written around 100 AD. And the earliest copy we have of Tacitus's Annals it's 1100 AD. So that's a thousand year gap from the manuscript that we have from the original. Um, we have 20 copies of Tacitus. And nobody bats an eye about whether or not that's authentic. We read it and quote it and study it in school all the time. Plato uh, wrote between 427 and 347. The earliest copy we have of Plato is 900 AD. That's 1,200 years gap between his original, and the earliest manuscript we have. And we have seven whole copies of Plato. Um, and, and Aristotle, 384 to, four, uh, to 322 BC, uh, our earliest copy of Aristotle is around 1100. That's 1400 year gap. We have about 49 uh, documents of Aristotle. And you can read Homer's Iliad. This is the, one of the best preserved ancient uh, for, from before Christ. And we have 643 um, documents or fragments of documents. The New Testament Bible written between 40 and 100 AD, our earliest copy uh, is is about 125 AD, that's a 25 year span. And we have over 24,000 fragments uh, of the New Testament. We have over uh, nearly 300 to 400 complete copies of the New Testament and then hundreds and hundreds more of like the book of John or, or the book of Mark or 1 Corinthians. And so all of these added up to like 24,000 document uh, fragments or, or completions. It's just, it's amazing how well preserved the, the New Testament is. So we have a lot. We have a lot of these manuscripts, partials and complete of the New Testament, exponentially more than other ancient writings uh, that we rely upon as significant sources of history and, uh, and even philosophy and thinking today. But just because we have a lot of something does not mean it's trustworthy. How do we know that the scribes who made copies of the Bible didn't make a bunch of mistakes early on and then it just got perpetrated? How do we know that they didn't add legendary elements into the biblical writings? What if what we have are 24,000 manuscripts that are just wrong? That's 24,000 times as bad as the other ones. Thankfully, we can test the accuracy of our manuscript evidence in some very important ways. Uh, Pauler, uh, sc- scholar, Peter J. Williams. Uh, Peter J. Williams, if you're interested in this stuff, so you know the book that I'm basing the sermon series on by McLaughlin? It's about 60 pages. Um, It's a nice primer. Like if you're just like, I I would like to buy that book. It's like less than $10. It'd be really good. Peter J. Williams, if you want to look him up, he's a New Testament scholar. He gives you sort of the next level. Still at layperson's terms, but it's about 140 pages. Gives you a little more footnotes. Gives you a little more like development of these arguments. And he gives a a fantastic example uh, by looking at the work of of Erasmus. Have you heard of Erasmus? He was was a contemporary of Martin Luther, uh, lived in the 1500s, and he was known by historians as probably the most brilliant man of his generation. Absolutely brilliant. He was, in the Renaissance, a a Renaissance man. I mean, he was relearning uh, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and brought all of this stuff back. And one of the things he's, well, he's known for so many things, but one of the things I'm mentioning him for is because Erasmus put together one of the most complete, uh, a complete Greek New Testament uh, based on ancient manuscripts. And for the Gospels, Erasmus only had two manuscripts. He had two, And they're named one and two, manuscript one and two, really creative. He was a genius, but maybe not creative. Uh, anyway, so uh, he, he, manuscript one and two is all that he had for the New Testament. And, and these, these manuscripts were from the 12th century. So that's the 1100s, that's the 12th century. So let me just break this down. Erasmus has these two manuscripts of the New Testament, of the Gospels. And they're dated from 1100 and he's in the 1500s, 1600s, right? He makes a whole Greek New Testament based on these things that are 1,000 years older than Jesus, more than that. Now, here's the interesting thing. Since the time of Erasmus, we found much older versions of the Gospels, complete Gospel sets from 350 AD, right? Way before 1100. Scholars compare Erasmus's translation and that of more ancient texts and the only notable difference is the long ending in Mark 16 and the story of the woman caught in adultery in John. the end of John 7 and beginning of John 8. In fact, if you were to look in your Bibles right now, probably those sections would be in brackets and it would tell you in the margin that these are disputed, that they weren't in the earliest manuscripts. So Erasmus has them included uh, most scholarship now will include them in brackets and tell you that they 're not in the oldest manuscripts now here 's something even cooler in erasmus 's notes, he has noted these are not original. like he knows this from other fragments. He has two complete manuscripts, but he knows some, from some other fragments that they 're not in there. and so he notes it. he already knows about it. This is fascinating because because there's so much we can say about the quality of the New Testament um, from Erasmus's point of view, because he, he's 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 not lost anything in those um, 650 years from 350 to 1100. It's, it's it's been maintained that well. Okay, this is not a class, so I'm just gonna have to pull back. I'm gonna like just scrub a whole page here. Um, I'm just going to give one more example. That's that's pretty cool. So early in the life of the church, a persecution broke out in Jerusalem, right? And many Christians had to, and Jews had to. Well, Christians had to leave Jerusalem, Jews had to leave Rome. But anyway, uh, so a bunch of Christians had to leave Jerusalem, and they scattered. Uh, They went to places like Syria and Egypt and Turkey and Greece and Rome. And within one generation, the people copying the Gospels of Jesus were no longer Jewish-born, Palestinian-born Jews. These are people who spoke Latin and Greek and Coptic and Aramaic and early forms of Arabic. The New Testament documents were copied and transmitted by people who had zero firsthand experience of the geography, place names, cultural nuances, or the settings of Jesus's life. It would be like if, I don't know, like Collins is super famous, um, grew up in Helena, right? And then somebody who's a follower of Collins who'd never been to Helena Lives in Florida, wants to start making up stories about Collins's early life in Helena. And they're starting to describe, like, his house and the hills by his house and the kinds of trees that are there. And you would tell really fast if someone from Florida who had never been to Helena, it, it wouldn't line up. Like, you just can't imagine the difference that that would make, right? So, you've got all of these people transmitting. The Gospels, who had never been Jewish, who had never been to Galilee or Nazareth or Palestine at all. And this matters for two main reasons. First, it matters because there's no way that these scribes from Egypt, Greece, or Turkey could have made up a story about Jesus. It's just way too Jewish, too dependent on local knowledge and customs and language and geography. And even the names in the stories are... Like, you just wouldn't, like, like, Jesus, okay, soccer fans out there, you know how, like, the Brazilians, like, the really famous ones, especially, like, like, Neymar, he just puts his first name, he just puts his name on his jersey. You know how many Neymars there are in Brazil? There's, like, thousands and thousands of Neymars, but he's so Neymar, he just puts Neymar, and you know who he is, right? Um, Like, like, Jesus was, like, I'm born in 1975. I'm Chris. There's, like, there's 10 Chris's in all my classes growing up in school. Like, it's just a 70s name, right? Matt's and Josh's and Chris's, it's like a dime a dozen. Jesus is like that. There are thousands of dudes named Jesus. In it, but, like, there's no explanation that this is Jesus' what? Last name. Like, it's just Jesus. Like, he's the soccer player with the name on it because he's that famous. Anyway, uh, these, these folks from other places just couldn't have made up these stories about Jesus because there's so many specifics about customs and language and geography. Second, this matters that these people wrote from these other places and locations, um, because when we compare these copies from diverse locations, there's no change to the story of Jesus. There's no change to the writings of Paul or any of the other letters of the New Testament. What we find is consistency in the letters from Syria, the New Testament from Egypt and Alexandria, and the New Testament from a uh, in Greece and in Rome, it's consistent. So, so far we have seen that there's some good reason to trust that the Bible we have today is consistently accurate when compared to a wide variety of much earlier manuscripts, which leads us to the second question. Even if we can show that the New Testament manuscripts have been faithfully preserved over the centuries, how can we know that the original stories about Jesus are true and not merely the invention uh, of fiction, right? By by a bunch of early fanatics who are like, man, what do we do? Our master's dead. And he talked about all this cool stuff we really wanted to see happen. I know. Let's make up some stuff, right? People do this all the time. People make things up all the time. People believe we, I bet you we believe some weird things if you really drill down. Like not even about our faith, but just like people just believe weird things. Okay. So uh, how do we know that that wasn't the case? And, you know, like one of the biggest popular criticisms, I'm not saying it's a good criticism, but it's the one maybe you've heard of the most would be people like, like Richard Dawkins and the new atheists. Um, it, it, you know, Dawkins like to say that the gospels um, or, you know, they're not, they're not in their written form until a good 10 or 20 or 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus at the earliest. And that's just a fact. That's just a fact. The, the gospels we have were not actually written down until 10, 20, 30 years after Jesus. The stories were out there and people were telling them, but I mean if they were written down, like my memory's not so good. Like how do we know that that's just not made up? And so Dawkins likes to bring up stuff like the telephone game as an illustration, right? You know, like kids sit in a circle and one kid whispers to the next kid, uh, you know, a sentence and it goes around the room. And by the time it gets back, it's so funny and so morphed. and, and, And Dawkins likes to say like, hey man, that's like, I think what's going on with the New Testament, that's why you have these apparent contradictions and you got four gospels and you got they have four different angles on all of this stuff. How, you can't trust this. You can't trust this. Well, if the gospels are based on oral transmission of or the life and sayings of Jesus, how can they possibly be trustworthy? Well, as much as, as, much as Dawkins and other people, Uh, as much as they like to have fun using the telephone game to suggest a weakness in the New Testament Gospels, it turns out to really be a baseless argument on several accounts. I mean, first of all, when you think about the telephone game, if you've ever played it or tried to get your kids to play it or or whatever, it it, it is a game that is only fun when you get it wrong at the end. Like it's designed for you to not get the sentence right at the end. Um, So first of all, the person starts with a sentence, and they just usually like make it up right there in the moment. Like it has zero meaning, meaning or context or plot to anybody else in the circle. You know, so you might say like the pink pufferfish play pickleball in Puerto Vallarta, and, and usually you're saying it with a giggle because you think it's such a funny sentence in the first place. And you, and so the, the person like that you whisper it to probably doesn't even hear it right in the first place because you're half giggling, and then it, it's designed for failure and. The fun is in the failure, right? Uh, so no one from the circle of friends in the telephone game will ever hear the sentence out loud from the originator except for the one that it gets whispered to. Um, there's no context for the sentence. There's no meaning necessary to the sentence. And every time I've ever played that game, I try and pick the silliest sentence I can because it's part of the fun. Um, and so the game is designed to produce variants. And that's completely different from the ancient Near Eastern world in which memorization of significant teachings, especially the teaching of one's master or rabbi, would have been the uh, expectation for a disciple. You know, by age 13, most Jewish boys in Jesus' day had large sections of the Hebrew scriptures memorized. You know, my home library right now, I was thinking about it, I bet you I have more books available to me from my swivel chair in either direction Like, I've got to have over 1,000 volumes in my home library. I probably have more books available to me than the Apostle Paul ever had. And with, like, Logos Bible software or Accordance, you and I have more access to books than we could possibly read in a lifetime. I don't need to memorize stuff. I'm pretty bad at it, as it turns out. I mean, I can develop that skill. I used to memorize more things, but now I'm just like, eh, I'll look it up. I'll look it up but that's not how things were in the ancient world. In the first century AD, the memorization of dates, saying stories, and significant events was not only normal, it was expected, and it was baked into the actual culture of of, of, people's, of where they lived. So for example, Richard Bauckham, who writes this wonderful book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, remember if I was ranking these sources from McLaughlin's book is the 60-page primer to uh, Peter J. Williams' book, 140, still at a lay level. Bacham's book, you might wanna settle down for. I'm not suggesting you go buy that one, Um, but you can borrow it anytime you want. But he shows that there were designated storytellers in the first century uh, communities in Palestine. and These keepers of the text were authorized not only to preserve the integrity of sayings and stories, of important teachers and influential figures, but they were also the ones who corrected false stories. They were authorized to pass on the stories. But like, if I'm the authorized story keeper of Jesus's sayings, and then I hear like Andy's over here saying, "Well, actually, Jesus said da 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 We actually, actually, Andy uh, knows this, and then we and we keep it on the right track in the community. And this keeps these stories of famous rabbis and people like Jesus uh, with. Accuracy and integrity. Now, another reason that we have good reason to trust the accuracy of the Gospels is because they're based on eyewitness accounts, right? Like Luke tells us that his whole Gospel is rooted on interviews with eyewitnesses and people in communities where Jesus lived and where he taught and where he performed miracles. John's Gospel claims to be written by the Apostle himself. You know, so it's one thing to make up stories about St. Nicholas hundreds and hundreds of years after he was dead, I mean, there's no one there to dispute the facts of St. Nicholas, so if you wanted to do that, right? 300, 400 years after he's dead, you just have to say, you know, I seem to recall a story where St. Nicholas could teleport and fly. No way, man. That's cool. Let's write that down. That's what he can do. Um, there's no one there to say like, well, actually, I'm his grandma, and I knew him, or I was his neighbor, and that's not true, right? But with the Gospels, we're within a generation of people who, who actually knew Jesus and knew his disciples and and could say like, "Mm, actually his mom's name was Mary, not not Margaret or whatever. You know, you just, it's harder to just make stuff up. Um, No one but the four gospels attest to the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the four gospels don't relay the life of Jesus in generalities, or in decontextualized sayings. Like later on, you'll hear, um, well, not later on today, but you've probably heard of the Gnostic Gospels. You've read the Da Vinci Code or anything like that. The Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, are written hundreds of years after the canonical Gospels. And a lot of them are just, they're decontextualized sayings that people attributed to Jesus. And they're just sort of like, when you have no context, like, You don't know where he was when he said it, who he was with when he said it, it's just these sayings. It's really hard to nail down like, how do we know the context? Like what was he talking about and who was he talking to and how do we verify that? What's unique to the four gospels is how specific they are. Um, They root the events of Jesus in specific places and communities, they name specific people, And scholars call this a mark of authenticity that they call disambiguation. It's the opposite of ambiguity, right? It's disambiguation. Um, So for example, Matthew writes of Joseph the carpenter who was betrothed to Mary, lived in Nazareth. I mean, this is written while all those people are still alive. So, So people from Nazareth could verify, yeah, there's a guy named Joseph, And he was betrothed to to Mary. You know the magistrate in his town where he was going to divorce Mary? He was going to go talk to her? He'd already had probably beginning conversations about that. People knew this story in his town. Or there's the specific town of Capernaum where Simon Peter lived with his mother. Jesus stayed there and then healed Simon's mother. That place, I you remember in the summer when I was preaching through Mark's gospel and we hit that passage, that place is preserved today. And there's still a worshiping community there. Why would that be? Because because people like that new Jesus preserved it over centuries and centuries and centuries. It's it's amazing. The gospels are full of disambiguations. Joseph of Arimathea, Zechariah, the priest, Simeon and Anna, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, Simon, who was charged with carrying the cross of Jesus, and then Mark just blows out, oh, and he's the dad of Alexander and Rufus. No last name, no like, hey, reader in the 21st century, you should know Alexander Rufus. He doesn't put that in there because the original audience, them, oh, Alexander and Rufus, we know them. It's a disambiguation eyed witnesses and specifically in the the gospels guard against the theory that these stories were just made up and sensationalized. The people mentioned in the stories, many of them were still alive and could be questioned by skeptics and the gatekeepers of the storytellers, right? Those authorized people. I'm just scratching the surface for this case for the reliability of the gospels and the case for the New Testament as a whole. If that's something that interests you, I can load you up with other resources, but I don't really have time right now. I just think that those are some really good, uh, really good points to, to have this morning or this evening. But I'm gonna close with one last one just for the sake of time. One of the markers of authenticity that scholars of ancient texts, not just the Bible, um, use to help determine whether or not they're authentic is the test of embarrassment. The test of embarrassment, and basically it goes like this, the more embarrassing details about the author's main subject or the hero of the story, the more likely it is to be true. Because if you wanted to make up a religion or you wanted to make up a story about a a false hero, you're not going to put things that would bring shame upon him or her, shame on their family or shame on their movement. If you were going to invent a, a story to convince a bunch of Jewish people that the Messiah had come, you would not invent the story of Jesus. The gospels are full of embarrassing details that faithful Jews and Greeks and Romans would find extremely uh, offensive and embarrassing. So like, for example, a Messiah born to unwed parents, where that's mentioned like in the Bible multiple times, um, who never fought or won a battle. It's like, what kind of Messiah is that? Uh, who was falsely arrested and then tried uh, uh, as, a, as an insurrectionist, that's not what messiahs do. That's not their, their career arc, right? Um, this guy, Jesus, who was then executed in the most humiliating way possible by the Romans, the one that the messiah was hoped to defeat was the Romans. So having him crucified by the Romans is, is embarrassing, to have Peter, the eventual leader of the church movement, the man who denied Jesus three times, that listed in scripture, that's a huge mark of embarrassment. And you have to take that a step further because our kind of like Bellingham 21st century kind of softy culture, like we're real big on wanting to extend forgiveness really fast. We're really big on, and I, I, you know, I, like, that, I like that impulse. I don't like to be a hard guy, uh, but in the ancient world, man, there's, the forgiveness was a novel idea. That you could betray your leader and live, let alone like be included back in the community, unbelievable. They would read that and say, that cannot be real. That's no leader. I would never follow this guy, Peter, uh, for denying his master three times. One could argue that Jesus's embarrassing story starts before he was even born. Tonight, the Reeves family read to us from Matthew 1, 1 through 17. And I'm sorry I did that to you guys. You did such a great job with the genealogy. Sorry, that wasn't the most interesting text. Um, But I think it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, We heard this litany of names that makes up Jesus's spiritual genealogy. These names root the story of God's people through the line of David, back to Abraham, the patriarch of Israel. And it's a very, okay, doesn't, on the surface, it doesn't pass the criteria of embarrassment. Because if you could show that Jesus had this lineage back to Abraham through the line of David, that's pretty dignifying. That's Messiah quality stuff, (sighs) except for some details. Um, Because this genealogy includes women, And Jewish genealogies didn't do that, like ever. Um, It's not until actually the diaspora that actually Jewish people today are mostly known through their mother's line. And that was a significant shift when they started to kill off men. But prior to the diaspora, it was the men's line. And you would never mention a woman in a genealogy. Jesus has four mentioned in his genealogy. And it gets more embarrassing for Jesus because these women are not just women, but they're non-Jewish women. Or you've got Tamar, the Canaanite, uh, sworn enemies of Israel. Uh, she pretended to be a prostitute to win over her father-in-law's affections to give her a son because he was such a, anyway, that's another story. He was a jerk. Um, you've got Rahab from Jericho. I mean, this is the city that, that, you know, God had them tear the walls down with, you know, so Jericho, that's not a friend of Israel. But Rahab is in Jesus' genealogy. And she was a prostitute. And she's known for her faith in in, in helping hide the spies. And she joins the people of God. Uh, You've got Ruth the Moabitess. The the Moabites were probably more hated than the Canaanites. Um, Betrayed the Israelites, wouldn't let them pass through. Ruth was this great woman woman of faith. But she was also like, if you just have a... An educated reading of the book of Ruth, how to put this, Ruth was sexually aggressive towards Boaz. Let's just put it that way. She was a forward woman, uh, which would have been scandalous, right? It would have been embarrassing for the Messiah to have this woman. And and then you've got Bathsheba, who's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, married to him, uh, and and then had slept with King David, um, which I think that the whole story about abuse of power and sexual assault on David's perspective. But you're a first century Jew... Man, religious leader reading this genealogy, you're thinking Bathsheba is not a clean person. Right? This is embarrassing to have a genealogy. Jesus is an embarrassing leader before he's even born. But then to pile it on, the birth story of Matthew adds that Joseph, his adopted father, was going to divorce Mary because she was pregnant before they came together. That's embarrassing. And we have very good reason to trust in the authenticity and accuracy of the Gospels and the New Testament. But more importantly, more importantly, is we can trust what they're communicating to us. And I think that what this embarrassing story in Matthew communicates to me is that God sees my and our desperate need. And that he so loves us that he humbled himself on purpose, going to a low level, the low level on which you and I live. And Jesus goes to embarrassing lengths to rescue us, disarming our pride and meeting us where we're at. Yes, my sin is great. And I'm guessing yours is too. I know the sin of the world is great. We're absolutely lost without divine intervention. But the God who honors Tamar the Canaanite and recognized the faith of Rahab the prostitute and continued the line of David, the Davidic kings through Bathsheba, the God who redeems imperfect men and women and makes grandmothers and grandfathers uh, of the savior of the world out of these... Read a holy name in that list of genealogy. They've all got their issues. This is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us to rescue you and me and the world. What love. What goodness.